Welcome to Middle East Policy Cast from the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. This is episode 81 for November 23, 2021. I'm Scott Rogers, online editor at the Institute. From Tsarist times through the Soviet era, Russian leaders looked to the Middle East as a nearby strategic arena with vital opportunities and threats. As the Soviet regime collapsed, so too did most direct Russian involvement in the Middle East, a trend the Putin regime has long sought to reverse. Renewed Russian involvement in the Middle East was most powerfully signaled by Moscow's 2015 military intervention in support of the Assad government in Syria. Of course, President Obama famously drew a red line in 2013 about the use of chemical weapons and ultimately did not enforce it. So another element of Putin's intervention is that he simply read that the United States was not willing to fully commit to Syria, and it added to reasons why he could get away with his intervention. That was Anna Borshevskaya, author of the new book, Putin's War in Syria, Russian Foreign Policy and the Price of America's Absence. She spoke at a November 4 virtual policy forum alongside Lester Gao, a leading scholar of the Russian military, and Michael McFall, former U.S. ambassador to Russia. Institute Executive Director Robert Satloff moderated the event. His voice is the first you'll hear as we listen in to their wide-ranging conversation. After this. This is Gaith Al-Omari, Senior Fellow at the Erwin Levy Family Program on the U.S.-Israel Strategic Relationship at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. The Institute is dedicated to advancing a balanced and realistic understanding of American interests in the Middle East and prompting the policies that secure them. Find all our research and analysis at WashingtonInstitute.org or follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute. Hello and good afternoon. This is Rob Satloff speaking to you from Washington. I'm the director of the Washington Institute, and I'm delighted to welcome all of you to this very special policy forum in which we are celebrating the publication of a new book by our senior fellow, Anna Borshevskaya, a new book titled Putin's War in Syria, Russian Foreign Policy and the Price of America's Absence. Syria isn't in the headlines much anymore, although for the last 10 years, it has been a central story in America's engagement with the Middle East, um, engagement sometimes at arm's length, sometimes deeply involved, and sometimes indifferent to what is going on um, in that war-torn country, which has seen such tremendous human suffering um, as a result of the Assad regime's uh, brutal crackdown on what began as peaceful revolt just over 10 years ago. Um, and of course, the, the international context to Syria is something that has drawn in players from not only all of Syria's neighbors, but even from further away. And today, of course, we're focusing on the key international intervention, that by Russia, led by Vladimir Putin, who came in to support the Assad regime and has used Syria to be a main forward base for Russian um, uh, ambitions in the Middle East. Um, this is a story brilliantly told in Anna's new book, and we're going to delve into um, Anna's book, and we're going to delve into the story of Russian strategy in Syria, what the Russians have achieved, what they haven't achieved, and what the implications are for America's interests in the Middle East. I'm delighted to welcome, in addition 
to Anna Borchevskaya, uh, the Institute's senior fellow and, and really an outstanding expert on Russian Middle East policy. I'm delighted to welcome Ambassador Michael McFall and Professor Lester Grau. Mike McFall is the director of the Freeman Spodley Institute for International Studies at Stanford. Previously, he served five years in the Obama administration on the National Security Council, and then, of course, as American ambassador to Moscow. Really delighted he can join us from the West Coast. And then in the middle of the country, Professor Lester Grau is the research director for Foreign Military Studies Office at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, serving in the U.S., served the U.S. Army for more than five decades, retiring as lieutenant colonel, but continuing service through professional military education. He's one of the Army's leading experts on Russia. Um, and I'm delighted that he can join us from the middle of the country in Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. First, I'm going to turn to my colleague, Anna, um, who's going to offer some brief remarks on her book, and then we'll turn to Les and then to Mike to offer a response. But um, much of this hour, I want to devote to, uh, to back and forth questions and answers from all of you who are participating either on Zoom or on live stream. So with that, it's a, a great privilege to turn the podium over to my colleague, Dr. Anna Borshevskaya. Anna. Uh, I'd like to start uh, the conversation about Russia in Syria uh, by first putting it into broader, uh, very important historical context. Uh, Western commentators traditionally tend to focus uh, a lot on Russia's interests in Europe, um, but the Russian state historically worried at, very least, at the very least to the same degree about its southern borders, that is Central Asia, the Caucasus and the Middle East, the, the so-called vulnerable soft uh, underbelly that uh, always uh, worried the Russian state uh, and uh, a region that it historically perceived as important to its geopolitical designs, but also to its religious, uh, cultural, and even domestic interests. So for a whole host of multiple reasons, um, Russia for centuries pursued a, a prominent position in, in the Middle East, and uh, chief of which is, of course, the Eastern Mediterranean, which was especially central uh, to Russian thinking due to its location and warm water port um, access. So while certain elements of uh, Putin's foreign policy that we look at today are tactical and transactional, um, others carry deep resonance to Russian foreign, uh, foreign policymakers. So be they, be they Russian czars, be they Soviet commissars, uh, be they Putin himself, or whoever else uh, is going to eventually uh, replace Putin, uh, certain elements uh, and interests in this region will always matter for the Russian state. And that's incredibly important uh, to keep in mind. Um, Russia retreated briefly and partially from the Middle East for a very short period of time under Boris Yeltsin, and this was really an anomaly, a unique period um, in Russian history. And unfortunately, as the 1990s progressed, um, while initially uh, Russia uh, worked towards uh, walking a path towards democracy, towards democratic transition, ultimately the more liberal voices uh, in the Yeltsin government eventually became replaced with more anti-Western, more hawkish elements, uh, chief of which, uh, especially relevant to the discussion about in the Middle East is a man named Evgeny Primakov, a former intelligence chief who eventually replaced uh, the more pro-Western uh, uh, pro Andrei Kozarev as foreign affairs minister. Uh, Evgeny Primakov chartered uh, very early into his tenure a vision of a what, what he called a multipolar world, or what Russians sometimes uh, say, call a polycentric world, and that is an alternative to the U.S.-led uh, global order. 
It was fundamental and alternative vision um, uh, to, to, to the global security architecture, to international affairs. And the idea was that uh, Russia needs to push back on American influence in certain key strategic regions. And of course, Middle East was part of it, uh, a key part of it. Uh, Primakov himself was a very skilled Arabic, the Arabist spoke fluent Arabic and knew the region uh, very well. So by the time Vladimir Putin came onto the political scene and eventually became uh, Russian president, um, this vision of a multipolar world was already in place, and it is a vision that he began implementing. He worked from the very beginning to bring Russia back uh, to, the Middle it, it, to the Middle East uh, through multiple channels. Um, this was a kind of a whole government uh, approach. Um, and he pursued a very different strategy than that of the Soviet Union. Um, rather than uh, a, a focus on communist ideology that drove the Soviet Union, Putin focused on building contacts with everybody in the Middle East, uh, all governments, uh, whether traditional uh, allies or adversaries, uh, and also major opposition movements to them. So this was a very flexible and pragmatic approach. And again, it was in line with Primakov's uh, vision of, the po of a policy that Russia should pursue. Now that said, um, even with this approach, Putin still uh, did this within the rubric of an anti-Western vision, and he still tilted closer to the uh, to the anti-American forces in the region, such as uh, Bashar al-Assad uh, and and Iran. Um, this is so. This context uh, was already in place uh, before 2011, when protest peaceful protests broke out uh, in Syria against Bashar al-Assad. And once the protest did break out. Putin supported Assad unequivocally through multiple channels, diplomatically, uh, politically, through arms uh, uh, sales, through loans, and so forth. So the support for Assad began very early on. And this was, again, under the rubric of the idea that uh, he cannot let uh, the United States topple another authoritarian dictator after the color revolutions, after the Arab Spring, after domestic protests within Russia itself, which Putin was convinced was orchestrated by the United States. He could not let another authoritarian fall. Um, crucially, also, he uh, was watching Western reactions uh, to Syria, and he saw that the West was ambivalent in terms of what it wanted to do in Syria. Of course, President Obama uh, famously drew a red line in 2013 about the use of chemical weapons and ultimately did not enforce it. So another element of Putin's intervention is that he simply read that the United States was not willing to fully commit uh, to Syria, and it added to reasons why he could get away uh, with his intervention. Um, so uh, all of this, of course, brings us to 2015 when Russia finally intervened uh, militarily to the great surprise of many Western uh, analysts. Uh, but the important thing to note is that uh, is how much work Russia had done to secure its position in the Middle East before uh, this, this, the military intervention was the next step uh, in this context. Uh, Russia in Syria, Russian involvement in Syria is now the longest overt uh, Russian military uh, engagement abroad since uh, the Soviet uh, war in Afghanistan. Um, and it shows clear lessons learned from the Soviet experience. And I go into this in more detail in my book. But uh, when, uh, when Russia intervened in Syria, many commentators predicted that Russia will get stuck in a quagmire, that this will be another Afghan experience uh, uh, for Russia. But contrary to, to those predictions, the actual intervention of itself uh, was designed very differently, precisely to avoid getting stuck uh, in a quagmire. Uh, it was focused on utilizing few limited resources, uh, 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 scaling back its involvement and involving other actors to do a lot of the heavy lifting, such as Iran. Uh, so, uh, uh, so contrary to these expectations, uh, Russia, uh, Russia is not bogged down 
uh, in Syria. Uh, another lesson learned uh, was one from uh, Russian experience in Chechnya, and I go into more detail about this in the book uh, as well. Uh, what Putin focused on was building leverage over all actors uh, on the ground. Mm -hmm. And again, read carefully Western uh, ambivalence and when possible, capitalizing this ambivalence. Uh, it all, Putin also portrayed himself as part of a solution uh, in Syria, and that's something that many um, had welcomed. The intervention then, therefore, was about many things for the Russian state, but most fundamentally, I argue, is that it was about pushing back against the US-led liberal global order. It was mainly geopolitical. Um, um, and the US, uh, I would argue, and the West more broadly, perhaps underestimated and misunderstood how much uh, Putin and Russia would be able to achieve in terms of propping up Assad. And of course, uh, uh, the, 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 the suffering that that inflicted on the Syrian people, uh, as well as uh, broader American interests in the region. The, the consequences of this are really tragic. Um, um, in my book, I talk about different aspects of the Russian intervention, the military, uh, the political, diplomatic, the domestic uh, as well. Uh, the key point that I'd like to draw is that this was a whole of government approach, is that military, political, and diplomatic really worked together. Uh, the fact of the matter is, uh, when the Russian state wants to pursue something, oftentimes it can do that with remarkable single-mindedness. Um, and that is something that we observe uh, in Syria. And unfortunately, this commitment um, uh, a Russian commitment stood in the backdrop against American ambivalence. So Russia is not any quagmire. Uh, to date, Putin has achieved many key objectives without incurring crippling costs or getting involved on a large scale. Um, Assad is now, unfortunately, as we see, increasingly coming into the fold of legitimacy. And as far as Putin is concerned, keeping another authoritarian uh, in place is a step closer towards eroding the US-led global order. Uh, Russia now has a permanent military presence on the strategically vital Eastern Mediterranean that it is using to expand and project power, uh, sometimes literally throughout the region. Um, and the region has also come to perceive Russia as a reality, whether, uh, whether it likes it or not. Uh, Russia is, is clearly here to stay. Uh, uh, and that is uh, true both of American adversaries, uh, adversaries and allies in the region. Um, finally, what I argue is that Syria will turn into a frozen conflict uh, that Russia is going to manage. Uh, and this might not be an ideal uh, scenario for the Kremlin, but if there's anything the Kremlin knows how to manage, it's frozen conflicts. Um, and, and indeed, a frozen conflict is a situation where everybody needs Russia um, because, again, Russia has ties to all actors, but ultimately there's no resolution. So uh, managing a frozen conflict is something that Russia can sustain for quite um, a long time. Um, and I'd like to conclude with just a few broader uh, comments uh, about the most recent context um, from, uh, from a foreign policy perspective. Uh, we are now in the United States um, in an era where we're talking about great power uh, competition as a chief priority of our foreign policy. This is something that we've turned to in more recent years after focusing on counterterrorism. Uh, as the chief priority after 9-11. Uh, the Kremlin for its part has never really um, stopped looking at geopolitics as a priority and, and uh, aside maybe perhaps from the early Yeltsin years. Um, and, that is, and that is a key difference. Um, so, uh, so this is not a new uh, competition as far as the Russian state is concerned. Um, I would also argue that, that the world is still unipolar and the United States retains a lot of advantages. Um, uh, but it is often possible to squander advantages. Uh, so the issue is not whether the world is bipolar or unipolar or multipolar, uh, but whether or not we're going to see the Middle East as an important um, arena of competition um, as we look towards uh, China. It's clear that China is our priority, but Syria is certainly not a distraction 
uh, from competition towards China. In fact, and indeed, uh, because the Middle East has historically been an arena of great power competition, that is uh, not going to change. And the question is whether or not the United States is also going to compete. And I'll conclude there. Thank you. Very good. Will the U.S. compete? That's an important point to end on. Thank you, Anna. Thank you very much. Um, we're going to turn to uh, to um, Professor Grau. Les, the floor is yours. Well, militarily, uh, Russia has has garnered several advantages uh, out of this. It's not just an expense, but they have done a lot of combat uh, testing of various new systems that they have. They have uh, discovered things about old systems that need to be rectified and repaired and, and are working on them. And uh, they have uh, been uh, bringing in entire staffs into Syria for four to six month TDYs to gain uh, experience in, in, uh, in a combat situation. So all in all, this, this has not been, been a totally uh, uh, bad experience for them at all. They've, uh, the, the, probably the only part of the military that's really uh, paid a price on this is their amphibious landing fleet, which uh, they have, which was old when it started and is older now and has been used uh, tremendously to support the Syrian regime. And so we're starting to see a, a, a rebuild of much of the uh, amphibious landing force. Uh, and and um, ships cost money, so it, it's not totally without, uh, without problems, but it's militarily been something that they've been able to handle. Uh, they've uh, brought a lot of new concepts, new equipment out as a result. They've uh, field tested some rather remarkable equipment. Uh, the, their new pontoon bridging system that they threw across the, uh, the Euphrates uh, and, and kept in operation for over eight months is, uh, was, was certainly uh, an amazing engineering feat. So they've, uh, they've done some very positive things for their military uh, while they were supporting the, uh, uh, the Syrian government. Well, I would just, number one, I was knocked over by Anna's book. It's, she's done a marvelous job. And one of the things that when we look at Russia, we forget that they ha do have a very large Islamic population and that the, uh, the, the marriage between, the, between the, the, the mosque and the and orthodoxy has not always been smooth, but uh, they, they seem to have managed, managed to do a, a fairly good job in putting this together. And uh, I haven't, uh, I, I think the ambassador would be, would, would be more on, on key on, on how it's settling in, uh, in Russia itself, but uh, it, it's, it's great. But I congratulate Anna on an excellent book. Great, thank you very much. Uh, I appreciate it. And we'll come back to, to questions with you in just a, a few moments. Uh, we'll turn now to Ambassador McFall, Mike McFall, who was in government when, when the, uh, the Russians arrived in, in Syria and, and saw this play out uh, with a unique vantage point. So we'll turn to you. Well, thanks for having me. Um, I was not in government in 2015, just to be clear. So they waited until I left government. Um, <laughs> but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get to that. But the war, had their involvement there, as Anna brilliantly uh, chronicles in her book, started well before 2015. And I also just want to underscore, it's a great book. Uh, I want people to buy this book. 
Um, and I want you to buy this book because if you don't buy books like this, this kind of research does not get done. Um, and I worry as an academic, as a professor first and foremost, but also as a government official, that we do not have the, the infrastructure and the market system to provide the resources to do this kind of in-depth research. And I, it scares me that we, we have a lot of opinions, we have a lot of blogs, we have a lot of chatter out there. We don't have a lot of in-depth empirical research with thousands, I think on our footnotes, uh, that's what we need to understand the world. So the only way we get books like this published in the future is if you buy them. So please buy this book. Uh, that's the most important thing I need to say. Uh, I do have four other points slash questions, okay? Um, there, and I'm, just as a way to kind of continue the conversation and in a way to continue the book, um, uh, you know, what in terms of updating. But first, I want to start with a little bit of history on the motivations part. Um, uh, when I was the ambassador to, in Moscow from 2012 to 14, uh, without question, I spent most, uh, on terms of big foreign policy issue areas, I spent most of my time on Syria. Uh, I wrote my own book about my time in government uh, three years ago. And the longest chapter in that book is titled Chasing Russians, Failing Syrians. And it's about our attempts to try to work with the Russian government to come to some kind of political settlement in Syria. And we failed dramatically. And I think we need to underscore and just admit that our strategy did not succeed. Um, my question building on that in the book to Anna is, is could we have succeeded under different circumstances or different leaders in Russia? I think a really important insight uh, that I, you can tell I agree with that you, uh, in talking about motivations, as you make clear, this is not just about Tartus. This is about the West. This is about propping up a dictator against the United States um, in the wake of other military interventions that we did to undermine dictators, including, by the way, just Gaddafi, just uh, you know, a couple of years earlier. I, I think that's a, a central point that often gets missed by those that just look at a conflict in the Middle East through the prism of the of understanding the Middle East, or from the prism of understanding geopolitics and realpolitik, and not thinking about Putin and the, and his worldview. And I think that is a great contribution for your book. Um, the, the question in my mind is is twofold. Um, you you invoked it a little bit in your comments already, uh, talking about the Yeltsin years. Um, and my question is, you know, will Russia always behave this way or could things change? Uh, and you, you intimated, you suggested that it was different during the Yeltsin period. And my first question, was that because Russia was weak or because Russia was pro-Western and a Demo looking democratically? And it's on my mind because I dealt with Medvedev and Putin in the government. And you, people need to remember that in 2011, uh, President Medvedev, I was in the room when he agreed, meeting with then Vice President Biden. In March 2011, he acquiesced to UN Security Council resolution to use force against Gaddafi. Uh, that never happened in Russian or Soviet history. Uh, rather remarkable. I'll tell you honestly, sitting in the Kremlin that night, I was shocked. Uh, I was surprised that he did that. And, that, and we know how Mr. Putin responded to that, not very favorably. And so the, the question I have, you know, what, how much continuity do you think there will be moving forward uh, with respect to, to the Russian approach 
or the Putin approach uh, to conflicts like uh, Syria. So that's question number one about motivation and counterfactuals. Second, you know, and you have a you have this documented. I just want you to say more about it. What exactly did Putin win? Uh, victory, most certainly, I think, and Lester just talked about it, in terms of the air military campaign. Uh, that was a victory. Demonstrated a lot of new capacities that I think many of us, you know, did not know that they had. But now let's update that from 2015, and let's talk about what on the ground has Putin achieved in terms of his objectives. Um, it seems to me that the main objective is keeping dictatorship in place is there, but at, at what cost? I mean, what a mess Syria is today. Um, it seems to me, I'm not the expert, I want you to respond to that. And in particular, you know, you, you talk about the price of America's absence, and I could not agree more about that. I'll end my comments about that in a moment. Um, but I'm, in, I'm interested in Turkey's presence. Uh, and, and if you could say a little bit more about that, um, both in Syria, but also Libya and Nagorno-Karabakh, um, uh, yes, you know, the air uh, campaign for uh, Putin has been successful in Syria, but it seems to me, again, not as an expert, but I, I want to turn to you and get your views that Turkish military operations have been rather successful. Uh, some new techniques there, including the use of drones in novel ways that the Russians have not had a, re a response for. And, and I would say the same about Libya and Nagorno-Karabakh, which makes me wonder, uh, to your point about frozen conflicts, uh, maybe Putin doesn't care about unifying uh, Syria, and he's perfectly happy with this divided place where you, you, you basically have a Turkish enclave, an American enclave, and a Russian-dominated enclave. And is that 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 is a status quo that he's willing to live with because he really doesn't care about anything bigger. Uh, two last questions, uh, just if you have time to respond. Um, I'm interested in the lessons learned from this war so far by other observers. Uh, I'm interested in what you think uh, the Israelis have learned, the Saudis, the Iranians, Hezbollah, uh, the Chinese, the Europeans, um, you know, do they look at this use of military force and say, oh, my gosh, Russia's back. We need to now cooperate with them because they're a powerful actor in the Middle East. Or do they look at Russia's new military presence in Syria and shudder at that and think, oh, my gosh, Russia's back. What a nightmare. Uh, and we want to look at other ways to uh, it contains too strong a word, but not work closely with them. And I ask that question because, as you know, I'm a better than anybody, literally better than anybody I know, that Putin has uh, been pursuing for two decades now, I think a rather sophisticated, multi-pronged strategy that is very, as you write about, you know, is very different compared to different countries. And, and, and his achievements in having closer relations with Israel, Iran, Saudi Arabia, the other monarchies, uh, kind of impressive. Uh, nobody else is achieving that, it seems to me. And yet I, I'm interested in how this war uh, impacts on that diplomatic strategy that he had in place before this. And I, I don't know the answer. I'm interested in, in what you think. And particularly around Assad and the normalization of Assad that you hinted at, is that, do you see that eventually happening or are, is it going to be more of a frozen effort there 
And, and to the extent that you can talk about different Russian interests versus Iranian interests, I'd be interested in that too. I know I'm asking you to do a lot in uh, whatever time uh, Rob's gonna give you. Uh, and the last question is the obvious one um, because of the, the subtitle of your book, just to update us to the best of your ability. Um, uh, as you know, there was, a, there was a rather big controversy in the Trump administration about the war in Syria. Uh, Secretary Mattis resigned 2018, as I recall. Uh, Brett McGurk resigned, uh, not supportive of what the president wanted at the time. Uh, Brett McGurk is now back, as we all know. He works at the White House. I presume he's playing a major role in um, uh, the American, the Biden strategy vis-a-vis -vis Syria. What is it? Uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm confused. And, and anything you can, are they... Are they just accepting this frozen conflict, which, it, you know, from afar, it seems like I haven't seen many initiatives to, to change that. Uh, or are they preparing for a new strategy that will try to, um, um, you know, shake things up? And I'm just to the extent that you could comment on that, I would love to hear your thoughts. Thank you for having me. Bye bye. All right. Well, um, uh, so Ambassador McFall put on his professorial hat and, and posed um, a, uh, a substantial list of questions to you, Anna. Um, and this is in addition to um, um, quite a uh, um, quite a list that is coming over the um, the Zoom Q and A and into my own email. So we have lots of stuff to discuss. Anna, maybe you want to um, at least take a stab at at some of the questions that uh, that Mike posed, and and then we'll uh, we'll work around this conversation. Sure, Robin. And Mike, thank you. These are excellent questions. I, I very much look forward to answering them as best as I can in the next uh, couple of minutes. Um, so to your first question, uh, will Russia always behave this way? Uh, I'd like to think that no. Uh, I'd like to think that it can be uh, different. Um, uh, I uh, We have not really seen Russia behave fundamentally differently, unfortunately, except for in these very early Yeltsin years. And, you know, I think the tragedy of that period is that it was really brief. Uh, and there were a lot of opportunities uh, squandered and liberal, genuine liberal voices, which existed, as you know very well, because you were there, liberal voices absolutely existed in Russia, but they also ultimately got pushed out and that window of opportunity closed. Uh, but I would like to think that, uh, that eventually Russia could be different uh, looking into the future. Um, and it could, um, uh, it, it could come closer to a, a Western, a Western liberal values that, that, that we aspire to. Um, Will, um, so sorry, I'm just looking back at your uh, uh, earlier questions. In terms of the circumstances, right, could we have, uh, could we have, what we, what we could have done better, uh, if I understand your question correctly, could we have, uh, could we have, what we could have accomplished? Um, uh, I think, uh, again, a critical window of opportunity lost was when President Obama drew a red line in Syria against the use of chemical weapons and then did not enforce it. And, you know, look, the fact of the matter is once you uh, make a statement like that, once you draw a red line and then you don't enforce it, it sends a message globally. Uh, I, look, I remember talking uh, to, to some Japanese officials who were worried um, that, that, that they will not get American support against China's aggression. Over some, uh, and, and so this is how far messages like this reverberate. Um, and uh, uh, and that, that, that window unfortunately closed. Um, and, you know, even if, even if that scenario played out differently, uh, look, Syria is absolutely very complicated. And no, it would not have been easy. I don't think Syria ever could have been an easy uh, scenario, no matter what we had done. But um, I think if we had 
uh, appeared strong and committed uh, globally, uh, then it would have been um, harder for Russia to project its influence and prop up. One of the worst dictators of our time, really. Um, to your question about Turkey, uh, yeah, Turkey absolutely uh, had also made uh, a lot of, uh, covered a lot of ground. Uh, Turkey is now closer to Russia's doorstep for comfort in Azerbaijan, and that has not gotten noticed by the Russian government. Um, what, uh, the way I would answer this question is looking at the broader Russia-Turkey relationship. For years, Putin has um, stacked the cards um, against Erdogan in a way that the bilateral relationship uh, offers more advantages to Russia than the other way around. So the trade relationship, for example, is skewed more in Russia's favor. Um, and uh, we had seen that happen very early on to the Syria intervention where Putin uh, basically turned off the tap of Russian tourists coming into Syria when Turkey accidentally shut down the Russian plane. Um, that had a huge impact on the Turkish economy. Uh, Russia is now building a, a Turkish uh, nuclear power plant. Uh, Sputnik plays a very prominent role in the Turkish media and really carries out information operations. Um, of course, Turkey purchased the S-400 from Russia as well. So they're, they're on a whole host of levels, uh, Putin holds more advantages. It doesn't mean that it's a difficult, easy relationship to maintain. And what you're seeing playing out in Idlib, uh, also in Libya, is that uh, Russia and Turkey are backing opposing sides and they periodically come close to a conflict and then ultimately resolve it without coming close to a direct confrontation. Um, and I think that scenario is going to keep playing out. They're going to sort of keep putting a bandage on the problem over and over again. And you can do that for quite some time. Specifically in Azerbaijan and Armenia, uh, what's relevant too is that Russia still remains the only country that can talk to all sides whereas Turkey only has a relationship with Azerbaijan. Um, and uh, it is, we call Russian uh, peacekeepers that ultimately enforced uh, the peace uh, after the Turkish uh, intervention. So uh, so it's a precarious uh, dance, but Putin has been managing it. Uh, and that kind of goes to my broader point about management. Um, uh, lessons learned uh, for other observers. That's also a great question. And one, frankly, that deserves a separate conversation. Uh, but I think, um, you know, one of the key lessons, uh, unfortunately, was what happens when America retreats. Uh, uh, other actors step in with very different values, with very different interests. And this does not bring regional security. Uh, Russia became a reality. Russia essentially became uh, uh, Israel's neighbor once it entered the Syrian theater. And again, like it or not, they had to deal with it. Um, uh, Russian diplomacy was also fairly convincing in uh, that uh, Ru that Russia could get Iran out of Syria. I I'm not convinced that's the case, by the way. I don't think that's going to happen. That certainly has not happened to date. Um, if anything, Russia, it it's Syria that brought the Russia and Iran partnership to unprecedented heights in the grand scope of their 500 year history, very complicated history. Um, uh, but uh, what Russia had managed to do is uh, make certain promises uh, create dependence and, and build leverage. Um, so that's not, it's a very kind of hardcore realpolitik approach to diplomacy. Um, it, um, it, 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 I don't think, and I don't think anybody is looking at the region and is thinking, oh, how wonderful necessarily is that Russia is here to stay, uh, certainly not American allies, but they're also, they're, uh, Russia has sort of almost won this begrudged respect for sticking to its commitment. Um, and that's another important lesson to draw. Now, look, depending on which also um, specific countries we're talking about in the region, they have a very long and rich history with the Soviet Union. Um, the, their militaries have close ties still to the Soviet Union. So uh, uh, not now Russia, obviously. Uh, uh, so um, watch in, in their, their anxiety about America's commitment to the region is very real. Um, 
And so, uh, uh, and so they're looking to court Russia. And I, that's another kind of big dynamic is that there's been a, a, a lot of courting of Russia in hopes um, that it will move Russia closer to the direction that each country wants it to take. Um, so that, that, that's not a, uh, that, that, that's a situation that's manageable for quite some time. Uh, and, um, and, and that's, um, you know, that kind of goes back to uh, kind of management of, of frozen conflicts. So I, I get a lot of questions. People are pouring in into email and, and the chat function. Um, there's a bunch of questions on uh, that, that, that touch on one of the themes you just discussed a bit, Anna, and that is how Russia can balance in Syria its relationship with countries so at opposite ends of the pole as Iran and Israel. Um, uh, is this... Is this a balancing act that Russia can sustain for the indefinite future? Will Russia ever have to choose? Um, uh, uh, is Russia going to exceed? I think you just said no. Is Russia going to exceed to uh, the Israeli idea that one hears in some circles that that um, you know let's work with Russia to 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 limit or perhaps perhaps push Iran's presence? Um, away from the border, or, at least, or maybe even out of Syria altogether. How does Russia, on the ground in Syria, balance between these two very different um, partners? Maybe too strong a word, but these two very different actors in the region. Yeah, I mean, Russia balances first of all by uh, building good diplomatic relations, by acting, uh, by acting as as a channel to Assad. So, for example, to, uh, when it comes to uh, Israel. Uh, in even Saudi Arabia, once Russia entered the Syrian theater, uh, they they had come to see it as as the channel to Assad. So Russia can talk to a lot of actors uh, that nobody else can talk to. It can serve as an intermediary, and that is really the position Putin has cultivated. Sort of seeing himself, putting himself at kind of this apex of of a, of a larger pyramid of, of all these conflicting, uh, very contradictory uh, relationships. Um, and uh, it, it has been again. It has not been an e it has not been an easy act uh, to handle to manage, um, but it also one that today Russia has managed fairly well. Um, now you know if there was a war eventually to that to break out between Israel and Hezbollah or uh, Israel and Iran, it could uh, complicate uh, a situation for Russia because the one thing it does not want to do is to overtly overtly take sides. There, there were uh, there they kind of the essence of, the, of this diplomacy of this approach was to not take complete sides against uh, or with anybody. In fact, in this sense, Assad is almost an exception because here, like it or not, they did take a side no matter how much the Russians say that they're committed to quote-unquote legitimate government of Damascus, it's still clear it's Assad. Um, um, so, uh, you know, depending on how things could play out, uh, the Middle East, as we know, is very unpredictable and volatile. Uh, you know, Russia could eventually be forced into a position of choosing a side, which I think they will resist tooth and nail. Uh, I think the more likely scenario is that they're going to keep positioning themselves as a peacemaker. And they're going to, again, promise uh, mediation. They're going to promise very limited involvement. Um, and we've seen this happen in Syria, right? Russia served as a guarantor of, of a whole host of ceasefires, all of which had broken down. Uh, uh, and yet uh, more and more ceasefires were eventually were negotiated over uh, and over again in hopes that uh, Russia can manage uh, the new ceasefire. So um, it's a precarious situation, but one that's regrettably quite manageable. Questions uh, that really apply to all of you in, in different ways. 
um, uh, a question from many people about the staying power of the American military presence in in uh, in parts of Syria. We currently have uh, a base in Tanaf. We have uh, some Americans deployed in northeast Syria in uh, what is um, uh, 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 characterized as an anti-ISIS mission, but also has other derivative uh, benefits in terms of uh, denying Iranians access to certain things. And um, uh, uh, so I want to ask each of you in your own orbits, uh, the military uh, question, um, uh, the more political strategic question um, uh, about the staying power of the current American deployments in Syria. I'll, I'll tackle, I'll be the first one. Um, and actually this, this reminds me of another question that Mike has asked and now I'll get a chance to uh, address. Um, and that is about our policy in Syria. And, uh, you know, regrettably, Mike, I also don't fully understand our, our policy in Syria as well. And that's, and that's frankly quite troubling. Um, the Syria policy had been under review for quite some time. Uh, we're not seeing, uh, we are seeing uh, steps to of normalization of Assad um, uh, and sort of almost a tacit, uh, not, certainly, certainly not explicit, but a tacit uh, acceptance. Um, uh, but uh, I also, you know, I worry about what's going to happen uh, maybe a year, uh, two years down the road. Uh, what I wonder about is um, after our, our withdrawal from Afghanistan, uh, uh, certainly doesn't look like our, our troops are leaving in the near future, but what does that mean uh, in a, a little bit further down the road? Um, especially as, again, we engage into a conversation about uh, so-called uh, quote unquote endless wars. And I really don't like that term. Uh, uh, it's, it's not accurate. Uh, but, it, and as we try to pivot towards China, um, it raises more questions than it really answers. Uh, and the, reg the region feels that. The region certainly feels that anxiety. Les, Mike, do you want to comment on uh, the American military staying power in Syria? Well, I don't have any great insight either. And it's not a military question, it's a political question, it's a strategy question, like Anna uh, intimated. Uh, I do know Brett McGurk pretty well. He came to, uh, he worked at my institute after he left the government. Um, um, by the way, Secretary Mattis is also at the Hoover Institution. So uh, we, we talk about these things before Brett went back into the government. Um, my sense from afar is they're most concerned on just smaller things. It took a great deal of diplomacy just to keep the border crossing opening uh, for humanitarian assistance, uh, you know, that was discussed between Putin. Well, I don't know if it was discussed. I want to be careful what I know and what I do not know. But, but President Putin and President Biden met in Geneva. Uh, McGurk and his counterpart, Rashidun, was there. They were there. Uh, they were negotiating up until that point. And, and I was told that this was going to be one of the deliverables of the summit. Uh, they didn't quite make it then, but it happened a few days later. And, but what I'm struck by is think about what we're talking about. Uh, the deliverable of our diplomacy is to maintain a border crossing to provide humanitarian assistance to the suffering people of Syria. That is that's where we're investing maybe even presidential time just to achieve that very bare minimum. And I think that, that demonstrates the, the, the balance of power, if you will, how grossly it has shifted in Russia's direction vis-a-vis -vis Syria. And I, I, that, that to me suggests that our ability to stay there, uh, you know, I think as long as nobody pays attention, and so we're probably not doing anybody any favors right now by talking about it, 
Um, I, I, I tend to agree with Anna that the Putin's happy with the frozen conflict. He, and I think, you know, this, this is something I learned when I was in the government, um, you know, American diplomats, including myself, um, we tend to be problem solvers, right? If there's an issue out there, we, we think about it like engineers. I live here in Silicon Valley, right? There's a bug in the system. We need to fix it. We need to repair this. We, and, and oftentimes we do it even in places where our interests are, are rather mar- minor, but that's the mentality that we uh, approached a lot of issues in U.S.-Russian relations. Uh, what I learned watching Putin, uh, and I watched him in the government for five years, but I've been watching him and I met him first in 1991, so we go way back, um, is he's he's perfectly happy with long-term status quo where you don't solve problems. Uh, and, and, you know, he thinks time is always on his side. Uh, he thinks we will lose interest in conflicts that we think were really important. And, you know, there's some empirical data to support that hypothesis about American staying power, right? Thinking about Ukraine, for instance, thinking about how uh, concerned we were about 2016 and their intervention in our elections compared to now. And, and I think he has a general strategy of just waiting out. And, you know, he's now on his fifth president, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and every time they come in, they want to have some kind of, you know, managing these conflicts uh, uh, attitude with them. And so he benefits every time there's a, a turnover. And I think in particular with the Biden administration, um, when they say, you know, some of their language suggests that they also are comfortable with frozen conflicts, including a frozen conflict between the United States and Russia. Uh, they don't want any escalation, right? That's the language they use. And so when Putin hears that, that I think he's, he's very comfortable with that. What I don't know is the American political question, the political question, not the military, that if there was more attention, I don't think most Americans know. Uh, what we're doing inside Syria. Uh, I think they'd be surprised uh, to know that the, the level of forces that are there. And if, if it were revealed and it would become a political um, uh, question in both Democratic and Republican parties, by the way, not just one, but the, the kind of isolationist tendencies you had in both, then I think there would be pressure uh, to withdraw. And I don't think there is a political argument uh, to sustain our presence there. But right now, I think it, it's 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 staying because nobody's really paying attention. We do have a more military focused question um, that uh, concerns um, Syria as a um, uh, uh, a venue for um, uh, Soviet for Russian, excuse me, Russian contractors, Wagner. And, um, uh, um, uh, and and what we learn from the experience there, what we've seen in broader Russian contractor um, activities elsewhere in the Middle East, such as Libya, and you know what lessons we're drawing from from uh, uh, from their operations there. So perhaps um, um, uh, Anna and Les, if you have comments on this issue, that would be useful. Number one, Wagner is illegal under the Russian Constitution, which is surprising, but then it hasn't stopped them at all. And Wagner and like companies have served a purpose and continue to serve a purpose. And they allow uh, Russia to do things that they might not want to do with a government sponsored force. So they they provide a, a, uh, a certain uh, 
uh, certain uh, distancing between what Russia is doing and what is happening on the ground. Uh, Wagner has, has a history. Uh, they, they all have a history of these, these private military companies. They, they provide a, uh, a, a good background. And Anna's uh, done, a, done a bit of this in her book. So why don't I pass that uh, off to you now, Anna? Sure. Yeah, th th thank you, Les. Yeah, first of all, exactly. As Les has pointed out, uh, technically, private contractors are legal under Russian law. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a very important, uh, unique feature of uh, how, how Russia approaches um, their use. Um, and yet that hasn't stopped them. Um, and so the question is why and how. I would say, and um, you, you know, the first thing to point out uh, uh, also about uh, the Wagner Group. Uh, very oftentimes, commentators tend to describe them as mercenaries, and it's, it's perhaps a useful shorthand. But they don't behave as traditional mercenaries, right? So mercenaries uh, perform a very specific function, a very limited function. They get hired to kill, uh, uh, and and that's really it in the story of the contract. Uh, but uh, Wagner uh, and other Russian PMCs. Uh, they sometimes act like mercenaries, but other times they perform other functions of advisors, uh, uh, of, of guarding uh, natural resources, providing security. Um, and there's there's really no equivalent um, in, in, uh, in how they behave uh, as compared to the Western states, uh, also where this behavior is much more uh, regulated and transparent. There's a wonderful scholar, Columbia University, Kimberly Martin, who has written an article uh, that I cited in the book that, that describes in more detail, again, the, the, this very unique uh, uh, thing, basically, that, 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 uh, that the Wagner Group is from a legal perspective, uh, that, they're, that they're certainly not just mercenaries. Um, what it does afford Russia is greater flexibility, uh, certainly plausible deniability, and that's something that many commentators have pointed out as well. Uh, but also, um, you know, as, and I think Les kind of alluded to this, it's not really all that plausible deniability. We know what they're doing, so you can't, there's only so long you can get away with, with this. Um, another aspect of it is, is domestic. Um, and that is that it allows Putin to sometimes kind of dole benefits, keep control uh, of these uh, conf uh, conflicting and very ruthless uh, people, very, very violent people, uh, by uh, sort of holding a Damocles sword uh, over their heads uh, in a sense that they are illegal. And if something were to happen, Putin can always do something to them. Um, from Also from a political, geopolitical standpoint, uh, from a strategic standpoint, this points to something broader. And this is something that I talk about in the book. Um, we often worry about conventional war. Uh, with Russia, we worry about clashes. We worry about conventional conflict. But what Russia has done uh, in Syria and frankly elsewhere is that they deployed a much more covert strategy. They did this in Ukraine as well. Uh, as Mike knows, it, it was the so-called quote unquote little green men. Uh, that, that those were those were PMCs that had come in. Um, so uh, it's a strategy of a country that understands it has limited means. Uh, and uh, it is pursuing a strategy of limited means against uh, an adversary that it, when it knows an adversary that has a stronger conventional military. Um, and so what I what I wonder about is, you know, once PMCs are on the ground, they can uh, uh, they can act covertly. There's very little ways to, to track what they're doing and they can um, set up a lot of advantages for the Russian state, and then the Russian state can present the world a fait accompli. And that's sort of what happened in Crimea. And so from a strategic standpoint, it goes to the issue of the future of conflict, uh, the so-called gray zone activities. And the future of conflict um, is not simply conventional. It's about these gray zone operations. 
Great. Um, so we have a, a bunch of questions. We only have about seven or so minutes left. Let me ask um, you one about chemical weapons. Um, now, we know that uh, Assad used chemical weapons. The Russian-American agreement to take them out um, was the alternative to the American uh, deployment of force, uh, the red line affair. Um, but we also know that that agreement did not pull out all the chemical weapons. And we know that that there have been chemical weapons used by the Assad regime since um, that original agreement, uh, the red line. So what do we know about the Russian uh, approach to Syria's use of chemical weapons? Um, Russian connivance, Russian support, Russian opposition. Um, uh, 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 what do we know about Russia's policy and Russia's role in Syria's continued use of chemical weapons? Uh, we know, uh, well, we know first and foremost that, uh, that the Russian government denied that Assad uh, used chemical weapons repeatedly. They've obfuscated all sorts, of, they've obfuscated um, uh, uh, investigations into Assad's use of chemical weapons. Uh, they continuously claim that the United States has a double standard. In fact, uh, Lavrov just gave an interview uh, earlier this week uh, using that very same term, talking about the United States and Syria and use of chemical weapons. Uh, so we know they've they've taken us they've taken Assad's position basically uh, on this issue. And and, and as the, the the question uh, mentions, indeed, what what happened exactly is that Putin had brokered this agreement uh, of removal of chemical weapons um, uh, and chemical weapons continued afterwards. You know, you know, and I remember thinking back then at the time, do we really? expect Assad's uh, biggest uh, supporter, his ally, his partner, to truly disarm him. Uh, unfortunately, I think that in, uh, points to a certain degree of wishful thinking. Um, it certainly would have been wonderful if Putin really did uh, disarm Assad from his chemical weapons arsenal. But in fact, uh, uh, the only thing it allowed is to, again, to uh, for Assad to continue. Um, anything further either of you, um, um, Mike or Les, want to say on the chemical weapons issue? Uh, just to add it's a small point, uh, and it's more of an empirical confirmation or not, uh, there have been, again, I don't follow these issues as closely as I used to, uh, but uh, there have not, there have been fewer um, attacks using chemical weapons of recent years. And one, one explanation for that is the Turks, that the Turks have shot, shot down all of the uh, Assad's helicopters, and he doesn't have the capability to deploy these barrel uh, weapons in, in the way that it used to. And I, I don't know, I'd be curious if I, other, others on the panel know if that is a explanation or not. Uh, and more generally, I'm, I'm just curious, you can tell I'm curious on the Turkish, the Turkish, uh, I, want, I, want, I want to know more about Turkey and Syria vis-a-vis -vis Assad and vis-a-vis -vis the Russians, because it, it, as Anna talked about earlier, it is a very strange, delicate, odd relationship you have between Putin and Erdogan. And I remember this from my time in the government. On the one hand, they're literally, they're supporting different proxy groups, not only in Syria, but Libya and Nagorno-Karabakh, uh, less so in Nagorno-Karabakh, but, but most certainly in Libya. By the way, I, if I'm not mistaken, there's Syrians uh, fighting in Libya as well. Uh, on the other and 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 they they fight to stand uh, still and they come close as Anna said to actually conventional uh, conflict between Russians and Turks but then they always find a way to back down from that um, and then on the other hand they're you know uh, Putin selling S400s to Turkey uh, I just find it a very uh, interesting interesting is a weird word um, a diplomatic word but but 
that is, a, you know, may have been an unintended positive consequence of the Turkish presence in Syria that, that has limited the air force capacity of Mr. Assad. And when it, you rely on the, Syria, uh, the Russian air force to do these things, of course, they're not going to allow uh, their weapons platforms to be used for chemical weapons use. So actually, uh, quite a few people want to want to get in uh, and, and push the the Turkey angle um, of questioning in the following way. Um, uh, actually, it's quite ironic how many people ask almost the same question. Um, is there a sh- should we be concerned that there's a deal to be done between uh, the Turks and the Russians that effectively get rid of um, uh, the Syrian Democratic Forces, get rid of the um, sort of statelet in northeast Syria, see the Turks expand their authority, see the Russians push us out and um, and redraw the map of Syria. Is this something we should wake up and be worried about? It is, you know, briefly, yeah, I think in short, it is something that we should be worried about. Um, it, this goes to the earlier, uh, our discussion from earlier about how we don't really know what uh, the U.S. Syrian policy is. Um, and in the past, um, uh, Brett McGurk in 2019 had fl- uh, floated this idea of, 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 of some kind of a deal um, in an article in a, uh, in a foreign affairs uh, foreign affairs magazine. Uh, so, uh, so that is something to, to, to very much, I think, to worry about down the road, uh, precisely because the SDF were our allies. Um, and uh, betraying our allies again uh, w- would be a terrible look, uh, in, in especially given the state of, of where we are today after the withdrawal from Afghanistan and, and so forth. Um, so in short, that is something that worries me. Okay. Any further word, uh, Les, uh, Mike? I have to go to another meeting right now. Uh, so I have one last word. Buy <laughs> this book. All right. That's terrific. That's an excellent word. On, and... and, and you and agree. I second it. <laughs> buy this book. <laughs> Terrific. So please buy this book. Um, uh, let me thank you, uh, Les Grau, Mike McFall, of course, Anna Borshevskaya, the Institute's senior fellow and author of this terrific new book. Thank you all for joining us today at the Washington Institute. This has been Middle East PolicyCast, production assistance this week from Corey Francis. For more research and analysis on the Middle East, find us online at WashingtonInstitute.org. Follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute and subscribe to us on YouTube at Washington Institute for events and video explainers. Please like and rate this podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to it to help others find Middle East Policy Cast. Mm-hmm.